Bach's Catechism. Okay, I said the third session would be the longest. I think it will be. And part of me would uh, would really want everybody to have a copy of my notes. Now, now I don't do this for sermons. Give a copy of my notes and we read along, okay? And I know most people on our day probably would say, you want death to come over your congregation or do the people live in, just read your notes. So what I do when I read my notes at conferences, because that's usually what I do, I give copies to, to everybody and I'll let you read it. And then you could write your questions there. And I have never found any of my students, any place I've taught, even in other places in the world, I give them my lectures, the entire thing. They have comb-bound things in, in Africa. They did these comb-bound things with 100 pages or whatever, lecture notes that I had myself and all that the pastors had. They loved it. They could take it home with them. They could write on them. They didn't, you know, of course they could read ahead, all that stuff. But a part of me wishes we could do that because this is kind of technical. Now, um, I don't want to be too technical and I don't think I'm going to be too technical. Okay, but there's not like a lot of illustrations in the notes. And anytime I say something about the Dodgers, that's just something I receive, you know. Um, but this, is, this, I think, is the, the most important uh, session, most important lecture. And it's a third question and answer. What is the first covenant between God and man revealed to us in the Bible? Here's the answer. The covenant between... Uh, the covenant God revealed to Adam in the Garden of Eden. Now, if you're anything like me, with my, with my uh, experience in, in American evangelicalism, uh, I was first taught there's no covenant in the Garden between God and Adam. There's no covenant there. Whatever you want to call it, uh, it's just not there. Get a concordance down. Look up the Hebrew word for covenant. It's not in Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, or 5. The first time it occurs is in Genesis 6. So if the word covenant's there, there's no covenant there. See, that's what I was taught. Um, Peter in Acts chapter 2 quotes Psalm 16 about the Lord not allowing his servant to undergo decay. And and, uh, and Peter says that David was a prophet and he knew that God was speaking about the Christ, about the resurrection of the Christ. Quoted Psalm 16. But neither the word Messiah or Christ or the word resurrection is in Psalm 16. But Peter says that's what David was talking about. So he uses words to describe concepts that were there without the words being there. Same thing, I'm going to try to show you the same thing with the Garden of Eden. That there are concepts embedded there without the words we normally use to describe them. So you might be sitting here uh, saying to yourself, are you claiming that there's a covenant between God and Adam in the Garden? And my answer is, well, yes. And your next question might be, how do you know that? And my answer would be, because God told me. And then you might say, well, where did God tell you that? Or when did he tell you that? And I said, in the Bible. That's how God speaks to us. That's how I know for certain it was God. Because it's the way the biblical theologians, the theologians in the Bible, 
look back and explain what was going on between God and Adam in the garden. So in this final lecture, I'm not going to offer you all the arguments that could be marshaled in formulating a biblical doctrine of the covenant between God and Adam. I define the covenant between God and Adam as follows. That covenant or divinely sanctioned commitment or relationship imposed upon Adam by God, Adam being a sinless representative of mankind, or the the older language, he was a public person. Whenever you read a theologian or hear a pastor might say, Adam was a public person. You're sitting there going, I guess he was in public. God made him and put him on the earth, but nobody else was there. I don't know if we technically call that public. What they mean by that is he represented a public. He represented others. Okay, so Adam was a sinless public, a representative person, sinless son of God who was an image bearer who represented others. And he had this covenant imposed upon him by God, was conditioned upon his obedience, had a penalty for his disobedience, and all of that was for the bettering of man's state, as Nehemiah Cox said. Okay, I'm not, I'm not even going to read the Genesis account. I'm just going to assume everybody's read Genesis 1 and 2. And you know uh, a little about it. So I'm going to offer seven, seven considerations which taken together are an attempt to display the biblical basis for all this. So first of all, consider, number one, consider Moses' subsequent and inspired and therefore infallible reflection upon the acts of God at creation as recorded for us in Genesis 2, 4, and following. So we do have to look at Genesis 2, 4, and following. So here's what we're doing. I'm calling these Moses' subsequent reflections upon God's acts of creation because it's after subsequent to the act of creation. Moses, remember... Moses wasn't there. Wow, day one, wow, day two, all that stuff. This is after the fact. But again, Moses is not me or you. Moses is an inspired prophet of God. Therefore, his reflection on what's going on there is infallible. Okay, it not only is inerrant, it doesn't err or it's infallible. It can't. And it's so not because it comes from Moses. It's because of God. So, that's why I say, consider Moses subsequent and inspired and therefore infallible reflection upon the acts of God of creation as recorded for us in Genesis 2, 4 and following. You know how sometimes they, they tell preachers, you need to have really brief, pithy kind of points. That's bogus. You need to preach the Word of God. You can have lousy points, okay? I mean, you know, they don't have to be alliterated and all that. You have to hold the alliteration. You can do that if you want. It takes extra time. Instead of doing alliteration, read more John Owen, right? (laughs) Just say point one. Or pack it with a bunch of stuff here that if I read, if I said... Friday night. My first point is this. Consider Moses' subsequent inspired and therefore infallible reflection upon the acts of God at creation as recorded for us in Genesis 2, 4 and following. You wouldn't be here today. But now I can say that and go, huh, 
What is his subsequent inspired and therefore infallible reflection upon the acts of God at creation? It's recorded for us in Genesis 2, 4 and following. How does that relate to the, the first covenant between God and man being in the garden with Adam? Let's read Genesis 2, 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the... Now, I have the New American Standard and it says, uh, Yahweh Elohim, Lord God, made heaven and earth. Okay, now, if I just stopped there, it would say, okay, big deal. Well, if you look and read the entirety of chapter 1, Yahweh Elohim, Lord God, is not used. What's the... You probably know enough. Elohim, strong, powerful one, creator. Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Yahweh. What's that? The blank name of God. Starts with a C. The covenantal name of God, right? Covenantal name of God is Yahweh. That's who he revealed to himself, to Moses and Israel as. And traditionally, they've called that the covenant name of God. Well, it's not used until Genesis 2-4. So there's a transition in this passage. It's also um, important, well, it, anyway, in Genesis 2-4, Moses goes from the, using the term Elohim for God to the phrase Yahweh Elohim, Lord God, Yahweh being the covenantal name of God. Uh, and you can see that he, um, in, in a lot of passages. So he goes from just Elohim to a phrase, Yahweh Elohim. Why would he do that? Well, if you've heard Genesis preached or studied it, you know that a lot of Bible commentaries and theologians think that Genesis 1 is kind of a macrocosmic uh, perspective. And then what happens in Genesis 2 is Moses goes back and focuses on, I'm calling the apex of creation, which is man in God's image. So Genesis 2 is broader, Genesis 1 is broader, Genesis 2 is specific and more focused. Mo- Moses goes from Elohim to Yahweh Elohim. And many believe he does this, that Moses goes from creation in general to the apex of creation, man in God's image, and his covenantal responsibility to God. So in Genesis 1... It's man's a creature. In Genesis 2, man's a covenantal creature. Man has responsibilities. The use of Yahweh here could indicate a covenantal act of God toward Adam. This at least suggests that covenant and Adam's vocation or calling go together. Moses reflecting upon God's act of creation and its immediate aftermath, uses the covenantal name of God in the context of discussing Adam and his Edenic vocation. Adam was made outside the garden. Adam was brought into the garden, given a wife and given responsibilities and duties and blessings and potential curses. For us, that might not seem to be an issue uh, worth noting, um, namely, that the, this, the, the, the change from Elohim to Yahweh Elohim. But it could be, it was a big deal to ancient readers. I mean, if you were schooled, 
that Yahweh was the name that the God of all creation has revealed himself to us to be known by. You know, it's a unique, specific name because we're the covenant nation. And it might trigger your mind. Go, whoa, whoa, we got covenant in creation? How would we know we'd have covenant at creation? Because we have the covenantal name of God. Remember, there are seven arguments. By the way, seven is the number of perfection, right? That's why I'm offering seven arguments. That's just something to tuck away in your head. The covenantal name, not the seven thing. I mean the covenantal name thing. Tuck away, because this is a cumulative argument. I'm saying there was a covenant in the garden. God sovereignly revealed to Adam. And I'm going to argue that he broke it. That he sinned. And he fell short of something. What do sinners fall short of? What, when, when Christ suffered because of our sins, what did he not fall short of? I'm going to argue that Adam failed to take his seed to glory. But you know who doesn't fail? The Lord Jesus takes his seed where Adam failed to take his. He takes many sons to glory. Paul says in Hebrews 2.10, many sons to glory. Okay, so that's argument one. Number two, consider the words of the prophet Isaiah. Now, if, you, if I did this last night, and I said, I'm arguing for what theologians call the covenant of works. Consider the words of Isaiah. You're going, don't they ground the covenant of works at creation? Why are you reading Isaiah? Last night you might have done that. Today you're going, you mean Isaiah talks about the covenant at creation? A subsequent, subsequent revelation? He's going to make explicit what's only implicit in antecedent revelation. Remember I said that? I, I was in uh, um, uh, Arizona years ago, and I kept saying that. I must have said it 40 times. And by the time at the end of the conference, several people came up to me and said, you said a lot at this conference. And if, if I remember nothing else, here's something I want to remember. Subsequent revelation often makes explicit what was only implicit in antecedent revelation. So what we're doing with Isaiah is we're, I'm going to say this. I'm going to read you a text in Isaiah. I'm going to argue this. I think Isaiah is doing theology. And Isaiah d- does theology in such a way as it teaches us about the nature of the relationship between God and Adam, actually, and Adam and the rest of mankind, and Adam and the earth. As we'll see. Let's read Isaiah 24, 5, and 6. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. Language of judgment. The curse here, which extends to the entire earth, came about due to the transgressed laws, violated statutes, and a broken covenant. So, since the earth was cursed due to whose at least initial sin, Adam's, as our representative, remember he's a public person, 
Adam then broke covenant with God in the Garden of Eden, and the effects of his covenant breaking affects those who live on the earth. I'm not the only one that says that. These uh, contemporary commentators say this. For all mankind to be under such a covenant, it must be the same covenant God made with Adam as the father of all humanity. Isaiah then assumes the covenant of works in order to apply it to all fallen humanity. Unquote. Here's a prophet, Isaiah, Here's our Bible timeline, remember. Here's Isaiah, a prophet, writing long after Adam was created and long after Moses wrote, utilizing principles that first started with Adam in order to explain the universal guilt of mankind. Isaiah's doing that over there. You say, well, where is he getting these concepts of universal guilt of mankind and the curse on the whole earth? Uh, That's just happened because we sinned in our day. No, the taproots to that kind of thinking goes back to the garden. And so we could say in one sense, you know, if Isaiah's doing that, he's kind of being Pauline, isn't he? Paul does that. Or maybe we should better say Paul's being Isaiahic. Or maybe we should just say, you know what, the biblical writers thought in the context of biblical revelation a lot more consistently and deeply than we moderns do. You know how we think about the Bible? How can it help me today? Lord, it's Monday. Give me a word. It's just so individualistic and me-centered. Instead of saying, Lord, I'm a sinner saved by your grace. Give me strength to obey my duties on the earth today and honor you. Anyway, consider the words of the prophet Hosea. We got another theologian in the Bible who's going to look back and connect concepts that first occurred in the Genesis account, well, at least in the account that Genesis is accounting, and he utilizes them in his own day. Consider the words of the prophet Hosea. And I realize there's a big translational issue here. I think the New American Standard gets it right. And if you want to read in-depth stuff, B.B. Warfield has a long article on just this verse and how to translate it. But the New American Standard says, but like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. Like Adam, they, ancient Israel as a nation, have transgressed the covenant. Both Adam and Israel broke a covenant imposed upon them by God. They both disobeyed. They sinned and violated a covenant. And both covenants were conditional, requiring the obedience of those in the covenant to enjoy the benefits of the covenant. Or as Moses says, in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Okay, there's a there's the condition, there's a threat. There's there's a, I think also an implied promise, but we'll get to that later. And we've already read the conditional aspects of the Mosaic Covenant in Exodus 19 and Exodus 24 earlier this morning. If then, if then. There's an if then motif going on in the Garden of Eden as well. So if this is the way to interpret this text, Hosea 6-7, I think it is. Here is yet another prophet looking back at previous written revelation, making explicit what was implicit in it. I haven't said it 40 times, so I'll say it again. Remember, subsequent revelation often makes explicit what it was only implicit in antecedent revelation. That's very important to get that. And again, if that was the first thing I said last night, nobody would be here. 
But if you get that, you, 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 can, you, can, you can put the, start putting the Bible together in a different way. You'll look at texts differently. I said it last night. Somebody said, somebody gave an amen or moaned or groaned. Hopefully it wasn't a groan. It's a holy moan or a holy groan. Um, I said, read the book of Matthew again. Read the book of uh, Acts. Read anything in the New Testament and start using those little references on the side notes. Start looking some of those up. Some of them you go, huh? I don't see a connection. And other times you go, oh, wow. Peter is applying that ancient passage from Exodus 19 to the Christian believers in Christ under the New Covenant in the church. Huh. Elsewhere, you know, you can start making connections. God is setting the world up for Christ and His kingdom. That, that's what the Old Testament is. It's a set, it's a set up. He's setting the world up for the for the entrance of the incarnate Son of God to come and uh, to come and do undo what Adam did and then do what Adam failed to do take sons to glory not fall short of it so here's you know here's another prophet Hosea looking back making explicit what was implicit in antecedent revelation the inspired prophet gives us God's infallible understanding of one of the similarities between ancient Israel and, and Adam. And what is that? They violated a covenant. Did they violate the same exact covenant? No. But they both are covenant violators. Israel didn't represent mankind in the land, but Adam did represent mankind in the garden. Um, third, uh, fourth, consider why this covenant is denominated, denominated or named the covenant of works. Have you ever heard it called the covenant of works? Some of you probably have at least. Okay, some call it the covenant of nature, covenant of creation, Adamic covenant, Edenic covenant. There's probably other terms or phrases for it, but it's called the covenant of works due to the fact that it was conditioned on Adam's obedience or his works. The term works in the phrase covenant of works is a synonym for obedience. It's just that simple. It is a term that reflects subsequent biblical and therefore infallible reflection upon Adam's Edenic vocation. What's that? What God called Adam to do in the garden. Eden Eden is the place. Vocation is, is a technical term for his calling or his responsibilities. The su- subsequent to Genesis 1 and 2, writers call what Adam did disobedience. Who's the primary writer who calls it that? The apostle. Start with the P. Paul. And where does he do that? Where does Paul look back? He's writing. I knew you knew that. You can't say anything. Where does Paul look back at the garden and call what Adam did disobedience? Romans. Romans 5. So Paul does it, right? Paul's a theologian. The Lord Jesus has come. I'm interpreting uh, the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of Messiah for the church. And quite often he dips back into the Old Testament and he calls what Adam did disobedience. So what did Jesus do? He 
obeyed. Okay? Adam violated God's law. Jesus upholds God's law. Romans 5.19, I think, justifies this term, works, when it says, For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Okay? That's Christ, Adam and Christ. Now, here's what's going on here in Paul's thinking, by the way. How do I know it? Because God has told me elsewhere in the Bible. We got a public person, Adam, and a public person, Christ. Remember what it means to be a public person? It's not, a, it's not the mayor of Bakersfield. It's a rep, well, it is in one sense, okay? It's a representative of others. Anybody ever told you this? The two most important people in the Bible are Adam and Christ. You're either in one or in the other. Even if you were an ancient Israelite under the Old Covenant, you were either in Adam or in Christ. You don't, you're not in Abraham, in Israel, in David. Okay? There's, there's two federal, covenantal, public heads. Adam, Christ. Sinless Son of God, who was an image bearer, who represented others. Sinless Son of God, who was an image bearer, who represented others. First man who sinned, therefore, fell short of the glory of God. Because he sinned, he... There's, there's, if you're listening to this, you're not seeing the video, the, the, the visual aspect of it. But he suffered to undo his sin and then was rewarded for his obedience. It was a life unto death obedience okay, that he rendered. And the obedience part is important, not just the obedience to death. Okay? The death is very important. Okay? It is finished. He exha- exhausted the wrath of God. But the obedience part is important. The the life unto death obedience is important as well. And his obedience was rewarded with life. We call it glory. It's the resurrection. Because he sinned, Adam, Christ suffers. Because he fell short of the glory of God, Christ, through his obedience, gains glory. And he's not stingy with it, by the way. And we're going to, I'll talk to you about what I think, what entering into glory means for the Lord Jesus. So the opposite of disobedience is obedience. A legitimate synonym for obedience is works. That's why it's used. And then the term works is also a good choice, I think, of words because it contrasts grace and gift. Paul does that in Romans 5 a lot. Grace and gift, obedience, disobedience, Adam, Christ. He says... In verse 17, for by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Much more, those who receive the abundance of the grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Adam's disobedience brought death. Christ's obedience brings life, a quality of life Adam didn't have at creation. Adam didn't have eternal life. It's a little warm. Somebody could turn that thing. Thank you. Fifth, consider the fact that Adam was a type of him who was to come. Consider the fact that Adam was a type of him who was to come. Where did I get that from? Romans. Romans 5, that's right. Romans 5.14. Adam was a type of him who was to come. You think uh, Adam was a type of Christ after he sinned? By the way, are there any 
sinners who are types of Christ. All humans who were types of Christ were sinners. But Adam was first sinless. So I think it's Adam in his pre-lapse or fall, pre-fall state, that is a type of Christ. But let me give you a few uh, thoughts on typology first. I don't think I put these up there. Really fast, okay? Real fast. Typology. Like three sermons or three lectures in about two minutes here. First, a type is, is an historical person, place, institution, or event. Historical place, person, institution, or event that was designed by God to point to a future historical person, place, institution, or event. God is sovereign over history. What typology says is that God in space and time puts people on the earth, creates a place or an institution or their, their, their acts and such as to produce an event to do that in order to point to the fact that he's going to do something greater later. An example of this would be the sacrificial system revealed in the Old Testament. The institution was designed by God to point to Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. Second, that to which types point is always greater than the antitype. Okay, remember we talked about typological escalation. Okay, the, the fulfillment's greater than, than the type. For example, the blood of bulls and goats could point to Christ. But they couldn't take away sins. Only Christ can take away sins. Third, types and both types are both like and unlike their antitypes. An antitype means fulfillment. The blood of animals was shed. The blood of Christ was shed. The blood of animals did not take away sins. The blood of Christ takes away sins. Okay, so they're like and unlike. Fourth, antitypes tell us more about how they're to. Typical antecedents function as types. Now, you can go, go to the store and say, yeah, I just learned about typical antecedents and their function as types. <laughs> Here's what I'm saying. The fulfillment, once the fulfillment comes, then we go, oh, then we learn more about the type. It's greater and it, it, it gives us interpretive lens in one sense. Fulfillment of promise always gives us more, more revelation from God in order to understand the previous revelation better. That's what I'm trying to say there. Once Christ comes and we read the book of Hebrews, then we go, oh, I, now I can go back to Leviticus. And it might be difficult at times to read Leviticus, but, but I, I can connect more dots now. Why? Because the antitype, who is greater, has come and it helps explain the function of the type better. The blood of Christ takes away sins. The blood of animals pointed to that. Uh, Adam could have taken many sons to glory, but didn't. Jesus takes many sons to glory. So that's typology. And the reason why I did that is because Paul is speaking about typology in Romans 5.14. Adam was a type of him, Christ, who was to come. Now, let's think through some specific consideration in light of Adam as a type of Christ. Adam was a type of Christ in his prelapsarian state, his pre-fall state. Not as a, 
sinner, but as a sinless son of God who represented others. By the way, who is in God's place under what's the God's rule? And God, yeah, people. What's that guy's name? That else? No, it's not. Paul. Well, I'm not thinking Paul. I'm thinking of okay, but he gets it from. I always forget this guy's name. Anyway, I've read like four or five of his books. They're very good. God's people and God's place under God's rule. Okay. Um, this was Adam as a public person, the sinless son of God who represents others in the, in, in the garden, God's place, under God's rule. Whatever God says goes. Um, before he sinned. Okay. Adam was a type of Christ as a public person. Uh in Adam all die. And what's the corresponding part of that? In Christ all should be made alive. By the way, do you know that the phrase in Adam occurs one time in the Bible? 1 Corinthians 15.22 Okay? So let's do a little, little thing with that. Does that mean the concept of being in Adam first came into existence when Paul penned those words, little prepositional phrase, in Adam, all die. No, it was true before he wrote it, right? Why do we know it was true before he wrote it? Look at the earth and the curse upon it and you know, the fact that we're all sinners. Not just that, read the Bible. But the Bible doesn't use the phrase in Adam until 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Therefore, it can't be true until Paul writes it. No, 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 no. It's true before the fact of its writing, right? In Adam, when did that first become true? In Adam all died. Uh, when he sinned. Uh, who, who put that into place? I mean, he's a public person. Now that I know that about him, I, I would have voted against him. <laughs> and do what? Put a Dodger fan in instead of Adam? <laughs> It's just God did this. Okay? So if you have a problem with it, you don't have a problem with me. Well, you might have problems with me, but not for that, because I didn't do this. God did this. This is the way God designed things. Public person, number one, Adam. Public person, number two, Christ. The more you love this one, you don't argue about this one, right? Look, I can't undo the fact that I'm a sinner. I don't need to fight God about this in Adam stuff. I need to find a Savior because I can't save myself. I need a mediator. I need salvation. I need my guilt taken care of. I need damnation exhausted. I need a righteousness that I can't do or perform or, or provide. Somebody's got to do this for me. That's what I need. Well, you know what God says? I've got good news for you. I've done that as well. Okay? He did not obey, that is Adam, so did not attain, excuse me, Adam's failure is seen in the fact that he disobeyed, or we could say he failed to obey, Romans 5, 12 and following. He did not obey, so he did not attain to the better state of existence to which the covenant of works pointed. Now that's a mouthful. The covenant of works pointed to a better state of existence. Where is that in Genesis? Where does it... Can, tell me where in Genesis 1-2 I read that God says, look, 
Not only if you disobey me, I'm going to do this, but if you obey me, here's what you get. Well, it doesn't say it that way. It's not the way it's recorded. Can we conclude, therefore, Adam had no idea about an eschatology? You know what eschatology is? That's the future. Adam had no concept of what might come about due to his obedience in the future. We can't, we can't, we don't know. Okay? We know one thing. Adam didn't have the rest of the Bible. But we also know this, that the rest of the Bible gives us clues and hints that there's more to the Genesis narrative than the words themselves tell us. There's concepts embedded there that wait until subsequent scripture writers they go back there. They take the concept out. They start writing about it in different words. And one of them is eschatology. There was a promise of a quality of life in the garden covenant. It's not there explicitly, but I think the rest of the scriptures take it. But um, um, teach us that. And we'll get there in a minute. Uh, Chad's not here, so I get to pick on him. The other day, yesterday, I was going through the notes and I... There's this statement someplace in the notes. I'm not sure where it is, but I'm going to share it right now. And if you remember, tell them, man, the best thing about the conference was when Pastor Barcellus said the the soteriological strand of Revelation takes us to the eschatological, which was embedded in the protological. Now, everybody after me. Okay, the soteriological strand of Scripture, okay, the redemptive storyline, is taking us where? To glory. To the eschatological. Okay, so the soteriological strand takes us to the eschatological, which was embedded in the, you know, protology means first things, Pro first, uh, in the first part. So that eschatology precedes, at least potentially, soteriology in God's scheme of revelation. Adam had an eschatology. Adam had a promise of life. If Adam didn't sin, he wouldn't have fallen short of the glory of God, but he, fell, he sinned and he fell short of the glory of God. What's the glory of God for human nature? It's whatever Jesus entered into and confers upon us, as we'll see in a minute. So, what's, what's, the, what's the statement? The soteriological strand. Oh, you, you, can, you can embellish it. The soteriological strand of God's holy written revelation given to us in the scriptures of both the Old and the New Testaments point us to the eschatological, which is implicitly embedded in the protological. Tell them that. Man, it was great, man. Matter of fact, there was homeschool kids there and they were quoting it too. (laughs) You know what he said on Facebook? Go there if you want it. Does anybody know what he said? Big words. Don't use those tomorrow. (laughs) I said, too late. I'm going to do it. It's in the notes. But if you explain it, you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. See, now you're going to start reading stuff. Okay, you'll start reading, or somebody's going to be preaching. You'll sing a hymn, and you'll say, hey, Adam, Christ, and glory. It's all connected in the hymn. By the way, some of these older hymns, their theology is great. They viewed the Bible 
as as a Christ-centered book, just like just like the Bible writers do. So um, he did not obey, did not attain to the better state of existence to which the covenant of works pointed. But here's the question: What if he did obey? Would he have stayed in the state in which he was created? You know, what, what was the state in which Adam was created? Able to sin, able not to sin. Okay? Able to sin, able not to sin. What if he had obeyed? Would it just be perpetual, able to sin, able not to sin? Well, and, and think about the fact that he's, he's a public person. Able to sin, able not to sin. And then, th- then tease it out a- along you know, several thousand years and then we come into existence. And our public pr- representative, Adam, is still able to sin, able not to sin. That's kind of a, not a very permanent state of existence, is it? Um, you know, it's, it's wrong for us to say, you know, heaven's going to be like the Garden of Eden. If we mean by that, we're going to be in the same state of existence that Adam was in when he came from the hand of his maker. Adam was, in, Adam was able to sin, able not to sin. You know where Jesus takes us? Able not to sin. Okay, so the end is better than the beginning. I don't think it's a speculative question. I think this is a, a good question and I'd like to... Uh, um, pursue an answer to what if Adam would not have sinned and and the reason why we're going to pursue this right now is because we're talking about uh, typology Adam Christ typology right we're in that context still we're on point number four wherever it is or five I think it is now listen to Romans 5.29. So now what we're exploring is, okay, what if Adam would have not have sinned? What would have happened? Romans 5, and we're thinking about this, by the way, in the context of, remember, type and anti-type, Romans 5.14. Listen to Romans 5.21. It says this, Even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's Romans 5.21. The righteousness that is unto eternal life comes as a gift to sinners and is based on Christ's obedience. So, the life unto death obedience of Christ constitutes a righteousness. Thy blood and righteousness my beauty are. Uh, I is it. My glorious dress. Yeah, my BDR, my glorious dress, or however that goes. That's one of the hymns I think we might have sang. If we didn't, we should have. But we did, okay. So the life unto death obedience of Christ constitutes a righteousness which is to eternal life. In other words, according to his sinless human nature as the antitype of prelapsarian Adam... Christ earned eternal life for us. His righteousness was 
to eternal life. And I have a big, long quote from a a New Testament theologian. I'm not going to read it. I'll just follow up that wonderful, glorious quote that we don't have time for with this. Eternal life was earned by Christ, the antitype of Adam, for us, and is given by Christ to us. So the quality of life Christ attains for us and gives to us is not what Adam had and lost. It's what Adam failed to attain. It's what he fell short of. Adam did not possess eternal life via creation. Here's one of the commentators on the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith. Um, It's too long, so I'm not going to read it. But it supports what I just said. So I'll follow up that wonderful quote uh, with these words. Just as Adam's disobedience brought upon him a status not his by virtue of creation, right? Adam wasn't created unfallen. Adam's was created morally upright, and then he fell into sin. His disobedience brought him a quality of life that was different from, distinct from, not the same as the one he was endowed with by his creator. His obedience brought a quality of life that was different. And I'm going to argue, what, was, what would his, his disobedience, excuse me, what would his obedience have brought to him? Just keeping him in the same state of existence? Or a quality of life distinct from and better than that which he was created with? The end's better than the beginning even in thinking through these things. So just as Adam's disobedience brought upon him a status not his by virtue of creation, so his obedience would have brought upon him a status not his by virtue of creation. So Christ, as anti-typical Adam, the last Adam, takes his seed where Adam failed to take his. And as I'll argue below, time permitting, Christ takes his seed to glory. I've said this before. It's Hebrews 2.10. Something to which Adam fell short. Sixth, consider the fact that Adam's sin (laughs) I have eight more single-spaced pages in nine minutes. Six, consider the fact that Adam sinned and fell short of something he did not possess via creation. Uh, by the way, Romans 3.23, you know, I don't have to say anything now, do I? You know where I'm going with this, right? What did Adam do? He sinned. He was the first sinner, right? What did he fall short of? Glory. Therefore, by implication, there was a state of existence out there, proferred, which is an old word meaning offered, conditioned upon his obedience. But he disobeyed, so he fell short of it. Adam was the first man who sinned. He was the first one, therefore, that fell short of the glory of God, something of which he did not possess or experience via his created status. He was not created in a state that could be called glory, and he fell short of that state by sinning. He failed to attain that state because he sinned. In other words, Adam was created in a state that could have been improved. First time I read that to somebody, I don't know where I read it the first time. Okay. By the way, anything good that I'm saying, it's all borrowed. Okay. Just got to read the right guys. And sit there and think and have the blessing of being called to the ministry and have the time to do it and all that stuff. But 
Adam was created in such a way that he could have been improved. You ever thought about that? He was able to sin. Able not to sin, but he was able to sin. What would be an improvement on that? Able not to sin. Full stop. Exclamation point. No ifs, hands, and buts. That's what the Lord Jesus takes us to. He was created in a mutable state. You've heard that word before. Mutable, changeable. Okay? Alterable. A changeable condition. He was righteous, but he could sin. His obedience would have brought him to a higher state, an immutable state, conferred upon him by God due to God's condescending kindness expressed by way of this covenant. God didn't have to engage with Adam on this level. By the way, I've made you and you owe obedience to me, but if you sin, there's consequences. And if you obey, there's consequences. Didn't have to, it was all God's kindness. Adam was not created with eternal life. His obedience could have attained something he was not created with. The confession, the older confessions call it the reward of life. And that what they mean by that is eternal life conferred as a gift upon an image bearer who is rewarded for their obedience. Now, I have a big long section in here called Excursus on Edenic eschatology, but we're not going to talk about it. But you know, already know what Edenic eschatology is, right? It's that which, as we read the rest of the Bible, there seem to be hints and clues along the way that there's more to the Garden of Eden than an end in and of itself, okay? It was a means to an end. It was a means to glory through obedience by a public person, namely Adam. There was eschatology embedded in it, okay? Because when we read the Bible, all of us agree with this, right? The soteriological strand of, of the Holy Scriptures, the Old and New Testament, tend toward the eschatological, which was embedded in the protological. Um, now, let's go back to Romans 3.23, skipping some stuff. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. Listen to John Owen, my, my favorite English Puritan. Man especially was utterly lost and came short of the glory of God. Now watch this. Is it up there? Well, look at this. What did he come short of? He doesn't say, in which he was created, for which. You know what that means? There's eschatology in protology. There, there's, there's something more to the garden than just tilling land and having tomatoes. Man especially was utterly lost and came short of the glory of God for which he was created. Here now doth the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God open itself. A design in Christ. The, the soteriological strand here. A design in Christ shines out from his bosom that was lodged there from eternity. This is great. To recover things to such an estate as shall exceedingly, as shall be exceedingly to the advantage of his glory, infinitely above what at first appeared. The end's better than the beginning. And for the putting of sinners into inconceivably a better condition than they were in before the entrance of sin. 
For Owen, the glory of God does not refer to ex- exclusively to what God possesses, the dazzling brilliance of the divine being, but what God confers on creatures. So the eschatological state, glory, is that for which man was created. The state of existence to which Christ takes elect sinners is, in the language of Owen, inconceivably a better condition than they were in before the entrance of sin. Now listen to Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. An older writer, Charles Hodge, says, it is an exaltation in view of the exaltation and blessedness which Christ has secured for us. You see, that has, has secured for us. Those are my talents. It is an exaltation in view of the exaltation and blessedness which Christ has secured for us. His glory. We hope uh, the hope of glory, the hope of the glory of God, secured for us by Christ. The glory of God may mean that glory which God gives or that which he possesses. In either case, it refers to the exaltation and blessedness secured to the believer who is to share the glory of his divine Redeemer. We get glory, a state of existence, because it is conferred upon us, having been secured for us. By whom? By Christ and Christ alone. He's our he's public person number two who actually is public person number one, right? You see why they say, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from all of our works, we, we're not a public, sinless public person who represents others. There's only one. There's only two, excuse me. The first one failed. We're not our own atoms. We don't have to take ourselves to glory. We don't help Jesus take sinners to glory. He takes us to glory by His own merits, by His own work, and by His own power. This is why we can exult in the hope of the glory of God. Since justified, therefore, glory awaits. If we're once justified, we're as good as glorified. This glory is that to which Adam fell short. Uh, Seven, consider the fact that Christ upon his resurrection entered into glory. Now, the preachers are all going, man, this will preach. But if I came, again, if I came last night and said, uh, the Lord Jesus suffered and entered into glory. You would probably said, I think I've heard that before. But hopefully now you're going, wait, 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 wait. This, this is big. Suffering and glory. Why do you have to suffer? Because Adam the first sinned and brought con- sin and condemnation upon us all. And how did he enter into glory? He obeyed. The Old Testament spoke about the Messiah who would come, suffer due to Adam's sin and us in him, and enter into glory. So consider these inspired and infallible theological reflections on the Old Testament. Was it not necessary for Christ 
to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? That's Luke 24, 26. Now watch Luke 24, 46. And he said to them, this is written. Thus it is written. Where is it written? The Old Testament that the Christ, the Messiah, would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. This is Jesus. Jesus believed that the Old Testament revealed the fact that the Messiah would both suffer and rise again from the third day. Or on the third day. By the way, he also believes that the Old Testament taught that the preaching about the sufferings and entrance into the glory of the Messiah would start in Jerusalem and go out to the nations. He believed that was in the Old Testament as well. It's in the Minor Prophets. You ever wondered about what, where does, why does Paul say to the Jews first and then to the Greeks? Where did you get that from? Did it sound good? Did you hear a song? It's a concept embedded in the Old Testament. And then like the Acts 1 thing, we say to Jerusalem, then Samaria, and all this. We think, well, that's the way Luke was outlining the book. And you can read the book, and it's got three parts, Jews, then half-Jews, and then Gentiles. Well, that's true, but that's all? It's just the way he outlined the book? Or he watched? Oh, the Jews... Uh, the first Christians were predominantly Jews and then they started speaking to both Jews and then uh, uh, Gentiles and so I'm just going to record historical data. Is that what it was? No. God designed the Messiah to come from the Jews. And the preaching of the gospel to start in Jerusalem. Why? Because that's where it all happened. It's where God designed it. So when we read these, this stuff in the New Testament, it's... These are echoes of Old Testament concepts and themes. Listen to Paul in Acts 26. So King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring to both those, uh, both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand this they testifying both the small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. What did they say was going to take place? That the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim the light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And what Paul said, look, I just proclaimed what Moses and the prophets said was going to happen. The Christ, is, the Christ, is, the Christ suffered he entered into glory by virtue of his resurrection. It's to this salvation, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them. They were not serving themselves but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The Son of God incarnate, both suffered and entered into glory, a glorified state according to his human nature after his sufferings through his resurrection as a reward for his righteousness, which according to Paul was to eternal life. In other words, Christ, according to his human nature, became what he was not at the resurrection. His human nature was conferred with a permanent status. The soteriological strand now becomes the eschatological man, Christ himself, in glory. 
Sufferings and glory is another way of saying humiliation and exaltation. And uh, Paul says it in a couple texts. I just want to read Romans 1, 1 through 4. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Christ's representation in this state of humiliation started at his conception and ended at his death. And upon his death, because of his obedience to the point of death, God, in the language of Paul in Philippians 2, highly exalted him. Okay, The resurrection was an exaltation for the human nature of Christ. It wasn't in the same state in which he was conceived in. It was in a perfected, permanent state, unable to suffer. Uh, Better than Adam's created state, by the way. The incarnate Son of God, according to His human nature, obeyed and suffered due to our sin. He entered into a glory as a result or of or reward for His obedience, and He did both as the sinless last Adam, representing those God has give, gave Him, those given to Him by the Father before the world began. Adam failed to comply with the condition of the covenant God imposed upon him and brought with that the ruin of the human race. He fell short of the glory of God, a state of existence in God's special presence he did not possess via creation. But here's the good news. Another came, the last Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered, then entered into glory at his resurrection. And according to Hebrews 2.10, will bring many sons to glory... And then according to 2 Thessalonians 2.14, who will also gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You ever read that? Do I have it up there? Yeah, there it is. Gain the... What does that mean? We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna be God? What's the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ? It's referring to this, the humanity of Christ here. What's the glory of it? It's a resurrected state. Are you resurrected right now? No, personally and individually, no. Is your last Adam resurrected? Yes. Did you get what the first Adam gave to you through his disobedience? Yes. Do you get what the last Adam gives to sinners through his obedience? Yes. Do you get it all at once? No. Okay. But we're going to gain the glorified status of the human nature of the last Adam. Listen to John Owen on 2 Thessalonians 2.14. The glory of our Lord Jesus Christ or the obtaining a portion in that glory which Christ purchased and procured for them. This is something He earned for us. Christ purchased glory for all He came to save. He did so as the last Adam. What Adam fell short of, Christ both attains and obtains. Okay, He gets there. And it's also something he can give. He suffered to satisfy the justice of God and his obedience unto death resulted in exaltation and entrance into glory. And all those who are his will enter into that same glory as well. The last Adam takes his seed where the first Adam failed to take his. Adam sinned. 
violated the covenant of works and he fell short of the glory of God. Christ did not sin. He perfectly upheld the stipulations of the covenant of works, precepts and penalties, and entered into glory as our forerunner. I hope I've helped you see the importance of understanding the covenant theology of the Bible. I'm finished except for one last sentence. So, I commend our Lord Jesus Christ to you. Our covenant-keeping, wrath-bearing, law-obeying, eternal life-attaining, and eternal life and glory-conferring Savior of sinners. Isn't it great as a preacher to be able to say, that's what we offer you. We offer you Christ. And we have to explain to them what we mean by Christ. Who is He? What person? Word? Why was it necessary? And when all those things um, face us, we realize after we read the Bible, it has a lot to do with covenants and has a lot to do with person and work of Christ. So, that's it. I'm ready to eat some tacos. <laughs> no, we're not doing no Q&A. Okay, first question.